So this is a chapter one, week two, of a study in the book of James that we're calling the Gospel on the Ground. And the book of James, in, in many people's view, is, is a beautiful extension of the Sermon on the Mount. It takes all of those beautiful blessings and wise teachings of Jesus. And the very end when Jesus says, and anyone who, says, who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise builder. And in many ways, James is picking up right where Jesus left off to say, let's do the gospel. And so that's why we're calling it Gospel on the Ground. And we'll be in week two. Um, how many of you were here last week when we kicked off our study? I'm glad to see some hands raised. It was an important moment of Scripture. This is when James starts off this letter to, at the, the, the first church age, the church is scattered abroad. Persecution has hit the church, and, and many believers are now in new places as they follow Jesus in a new area, uh, ran off from the place that they were. And James has a message for them. The very beginning, we studied it last week, he says, whatever you're going through, count it all joy in the various trials or testing of your faith. How many of you got to experience the joyful trial since last week? Isn't it funny how when you read the word or you listen to a sermon, God gives you all sorts of exciting ways to allow it to be applied to your life? And this week, our church got to experience exciting trials, joyful times. I know for my life, Specifically, it was a trying time. It was trying just in my own family with, you know, all of the different ways that we're pulled in so many different directions. It was trying time in our church, like always, so much of what we do is just navigating the ups and downs of, of being believers together, which is always hard. It was a trying time even in my own personal life as I went to the dentist, which is always hard for me to do. Uh, I love the dentist, but it is, it's kind of that picture of theology. It's like good news after the bad news for me. So in all of those things, it was like, thank you, Lord, for the verse that I needed for this last couple days to say, whatever happens, there's a way for me to think about this differently, to see things differently, to hope differently, because of the joy that we talked about last week, a joy that is not rooted in circumstances or the conditions of the world around us, but rooted in the God that has no shadow of turning, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so today, we're going to look really at a part two of that message. Because if you're like me, you, you faced various trials. If you're like me, you did well to find joy, but you also had challenges because joy is not something that we just get because we listen to a sermon. It's not something that you read in James chapter 1, verse 2. It says, okay, the Bible says to count it all joy, so here I go. It's just going to happen. Uh, it, it's something that James is actually going to give some direction on for the times where it doesn't seem to be happening. Because no doubt, some of you had trials this week, even after listening to the sermon, and you walk through the course of the week and you think, I'm still not seeing it. I'm not quite seeing the picture of God or, or God's fingerprints or God's sovereignty playing out quite yet. And James has a solution for that. He actually says that we're supposed to count it all joy, but we're not supposed to just grit our teeth and clench our fists, there's actually a process by which we take the good news, joy and trial, and put it to the ground, which is the answer of today. What do you do when joy is not the instinct of the believer? What do you do when joy doesn't seem to be something that you're fully seeing? And that's what we'll look at today. So we start in verse 5. On the heels of last week, making sense of the trials by trusting in God's purpose through the pain, it says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, 
who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. This is one of those passages of scriptures that so many believers rightfully hold on to, either as a memory verse or somewhere in the house or just something to reference for all of the ways that our limited view of the future or the circumstances around us need wisdom. And some of those are very practical. Some of you are thinking about the need for wisdom in a decision about a job or an upcoming uh, moment of your life that you just want God's perfect wisdom to give you some insight on. And that's a fine use of this scripture. If you need wisdom, ask God, he'll give it. But mindful of where we are in the context of James' giving of this scripture, this is really given, as James says, count it all joy, but if you can't seem to find it, if you can't seem to count it joy, if you're living in a time where you see a lot more mystery than sovereignty, if you're living through the burdens of your life and, and you haven't quite found God's goodness in, in bringing you to a place where you're, he's relieving those burdens, there's actually a solution. You're not dead-ended in the command of joy. Today we look at the, the, the command to also, next step, use as an opportunity to go to God. And I'll, I'll point back one last time to last week because rather than define joy with a dictionary version of a definition of a word, we actually look to God's word to say, how do we experience joy? Sometimes the best teacher is the teacher that gives you experience in life rather than just the working definition. And the Bible's full of experiential joy. Remember we talked about the joy of salvation as a way for us to have a reference point to this radical joy that invades our life. Sometimes while we're in a pit of despair, we meet the God of salvation and he gives us joy. And then we looked at another one, which is helpful for this study because it says there's also joy in the presence of God, the fullness of joy in the presence of God. Meaning regardless of when your circumstances go up and down and they're hard or they're easy, there's a constant of your life, which is an invitation into God's presence. And that's the joy that we will go after today because what James says, if you're lacking wisdom, use it as a reason to go to God. Use that as a reason to enter into the presence of God, which is a helpful reminder for all of us who are believers this morning. Joy and prayer are very closely connected. That's what James is saying. He says joy is something that is constant throughout your life. And when you seem to be lacking the wisdom to see it, to find it, to think through your circumstances differently, you now come back to the presence of God to ask for wisdom. And even in the simple uh, act of asking for wisdom, you have begun the pursuit of joy once again because you're entering into the presence of God. So today's message will really be a fundamental strategy for your joy, for the trying times that we live in. One of the reasons I was so excited about James is because it seems that we live in a time where joy seems to be lacking and trials seem to be on the rise. So we're going to continually look at this book through the lens of the gospel and through the lens of wisdom. And all of wisdom, it says in Proverbs, start with the knowledge and the fear of God. So today we understand that knowledge, we, the beginning of wisdom as the fear of God, by understanding the fundamental reality of prayer for the life of the believer. And as we've already read, there actually seems to be a working outline that kind of overlays last week because it works in three. And just for the simplicity of me 
remembering it to share it. I hope that it helps you remember. It, each word of the outline this morning starts with the first letter of the first three letters of the alphabet. So ABC, you could call it the ABCs of prayer if you wanted, if you find it helpful at all. But what we read, James says, do this when you lack wisdom. You ask, you believe, and you commit. These are three things that you cling to in the trial and three filters by which you use the trial to encourage your prayer life. Are you asking God? Are you believing God? Are you committing to God and what he shows you in his wisdom? That's what we're going to talk about today. And I hope as we do this, we find great encouragement for the time that we live in, the joyful, trying time that we live in. In verse 5, he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And so we'll stop right there at that first word. Jesus, or James says, you got to ask. And gospel good news, one of the lens by which we'll preach this, this entire series, it says, if any of you, and I find this very helpful as I share this to a congregation, I hope, of people who are following Christ. Some of you may be interested in what followers of Christ believe, but this is a very broad invitation, which the gospel is a broad invitation to a narrow path. This is the qualifier for anyone who wants the wisdom of God. What do you have to do? You simply have to ask. And yet, it is so simple that it's so profound that we can easily miss it. Because oftentimes when the trial hits, the last thing we do is ask God. In fact, in in much of the way that we'll be able to understand the, the outline this morning is through the lens of a child. Because... One of the ways that Jesus teaches prayer is through the relationship between a father and a child. He gives a great illustration that all of us can relate to if you have anyone young in your life, especially if you're a parent. He says if parents know how to give good gifts or if fathers know how to give good gifts when their children are hungry or when they ask, how much more does your heavenly father? And the key is that we would ask because children can be a picture of asking for food and they can also be a picture of telling of a condition. And there's a great distinction there, although it's very subtle. Instead of asking God, oftentimes, we simply tell him of all of the frustrations of the trial. Here's an example in the context of food from a child. Rather than a child coming to me, I have four, so I get this in all angles. Rather than asking me for food, do you know what they sometimes say? Simply, I am hungry. Have you guys had kids come up to you and say, I'm hungry? All good dads know the proper response, which is, nice to meet you, hungry. (laughs) My kids hate that, but I love it because what I'm telling them is hunger is not an identity. Being thirsty is not an identity. So if you introduce to me, if you introduce yourself as hunger, I'm going to point out once again that you are not properly coming to me for help. You're just stating something about what you think your identity is, and it's not. And in the same way, when we come to God and we bring him all of the things that, he, that we think he needs to see about us, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm afraid, I'm scared. All of these confessions are good in the context of asking. If we ask him for help, it's good. But when we just say to God things so that we would see us, we're missing the point. A point that Jesus actually made in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 when he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who do many things to be seen as if we have to get God's attention when trials are happening, as if we've lost the good favor of God because our conditions are so bad, we have to wave our hands to the heavens so that he would look at us. Jesus says, your heavenly father knows your needs before you ask. 
We aren't trying to get God's attention. We're trying to petition for God's help. There is no point in sharing our problems as if they define us because they're not our identity. Your trial is not your identity. Christ is your identity. And that's why your joy can be fixed in Christ regardless of your trials because your identity hasn't changed. And yet, when we come and say, my trial is now shaping who I am, we've missed the point. What James says is to ask, simple yet profound. We come to God and say, we need wisdom. And the other aspect of this, which is simple and profound, often lost, is that we would ask of God. Because oftentimes we feel the need for wisdom. When the trial hits and we see the rubble of our life or we see the brokenness of our plans and we only see so far ahead that it looks like a dead end, we actually have a rhythm by which we seek help. The problem is, Oftentimes, the last person we talk to in a trial is God. Sometimes we use trial as a way to create distance rather than seeking his presence. For those of you who are here Wednesday, you know that Tom Velasco is a fantastic teacher who often uses TV uh, reference points as a way to get theological points, which I, he's so good at doing that. He used a um, scene from Touched by an Angel, Michael Landon, last Wednesday. Listen to the teaching. It was excellent. So I'm going to use a TV show, too, um, maybe a longer stretch. Did anyone see Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? <laughs> Did any, were any contestants in Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in here? Um, how can we draw a theological point from that show? Let me try. The Who Wants to Be a Millionaire format was interesting. It's someone in a hot seat, and at some point, they go through a series of questions until they can't really answer by themselves. Welcome to the test. Welcome to the trial. And it's also a picture of what oftentimes we think are the best available options to us. Because remember what they were given when they got to the dead end of their trial or their test or their exam? They have two options. They could phone a friend or they could ask the audience. And so often I find those to be the examples of our own version of the theological right turns that we make when a trial hits because we know we need wisdom, so now we're going to find the smartest person that we know. And we're going to call them and say, here's all my trouble, and here's all the things that I don't know. Can you, best friend, parent, pastor, prophet, priest, can you help me with the things that I need in my life? Now, all points need a qualifier. There's safety in the multitude of counsel. It's good to have fellowship with the community of Christ that you're in. In fact, James is writing to churches one at a time, and they would go through this letter together. And this is an encouragement for you to actually find some of the multitude of counsel in the communities that we encourage you to join every week. But your community is only as strong as it is in Christ. And if someone's giving you counsel, it's ultimately rooted in the power of God's word or the wisdom given through the power of God's spirit. And so if we're asking friends without asking God, then we're missing the point. And in the same way, you have a second option in the show. You could also ask the audience. And how often do we see this as just the default position of the problems of our life? Well, what does the culture say? What do, what do we do if I don't know what to do? I'm lacking wisdom on the future of my life. I guess I'll go to college and I'll take out some loans and then I'll get a job and I'll pay them off over the course of the next 40 years and then I'll retire with a Winnebago and a beach and now I've all of a sudden lived out the entire cultural plan for my life and it had nothing to do with the wisdom of God. 
And so what James is saying to us this morning is the person that you find the actual source of wisdom in is above all of the other options. It is by wisdom that God founded the earth. The foundation of creation built into the design of creation is wisdom. Built into the fabric of your life is the God of sovereignty who knew you in your mother's womb, knows the number of hairs on your head, and has good works planned for you beforehand that you should walk in. And yet sometimes it's the last person that we'd ever talk to. Sometimes his word is the last point of reference for the decisions that we are looking for in the trying times of our life. And yet when you think back to the times that God has spoken to you or that you've found breakthrough, it's always through a revival, ever so small, sometimes longer than others, of the power of prayer in your life. It is how you are even able to understand the word as a gift from God for the, the path of your life. It is for you because the power of the Spirit came alive in your reading and he gave you direction. It's why you are listening to me, not as some random person in your life, but someone who is exhorting you to know the wisdom of God. In fact, in a small way, it's why we're gathered right now. You guys, if you've gone to this church longer than a year and a half, you remember a time when we were much like the churches that James is writing to, a scattered church. We went through a time in the, the crazy unfolding history of our world where everyone seemed to be scattering. Churches across the globe were scattered. Ours, no exception. And I remember living out this invitation of James. I have no idea what to do. I hope none of you look at this church and think that any of it was my idea. If you found something that was my idea, please tell me so we can stop doing it. <laughs> The only reason that we got back together, because I scratched my head, I'm looking at all these updates and trying to figure out all of the, the, the appeals to authority and the sciences and the ideas and the, the plans of other churches, and I was so lost for my own decision-making prowess that there was nothing to do but pray. Finally, there's nothing to do but pray. I love what the... Um, one theologian says about the need for wisdom. He says, not until we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can the divine wisdom finally become ours. In other words, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we opened our doors not through a, a sanctuary time where we, we did like a grand reopening. We opened our doors starting at 7 a.m. on Mondays all the way through Friday. And a small number of us, by word of mouth, just started trickling in to pray. And our church, reborn after the lockdown, was born by prayer. And it grew. And we started taking communion. And we started gathering together. And by prayer... God gave us wisdom on how to be a church again. And by prayer, God will do something in your trial to give you a revival of the presence of God in your life. But it starts by saying, in my poor spirit, in my, in my mysterious view on what's unfolding before me, I am going to ask God. 
And in your asking, we now find the second command of James because he says, but let him ask in faith. When you ask, it is not that you're checking some box off the the commands of the, the program of trial, as if there's a pamphlet for the playbook for trial and you step one by one and one of them says to pray and you do that. But it's actually a test of what you actually believe. Uh, and we'll get to that as James unfolds. He'll say your faith and your action are, are kind of intermingled in the, in the economy of God. Show me what you believe by what you do. And what you do will shape what you believe. And in, in this moment, James is saying, if you go to ask God, allow it to be something that is part of your belief in God. You're not going to a distant God. He says this, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. He gives three promises from God to the reader that you have to put your faith in, that you have to believe is true about the nature of the God that you love and that you worship, that if you go to him, it is not a fruitless act. And so the first thing he says for you to believe with your faith in God is that this God that we serve gives to all disqualifying none, liberally. Meaning not only does God have wisdom, but as it says in Corinthians, his foolishness is wiser than man. He has so much wisdom, he gives it away liberally to anyone who wants it. And you have to believe that about God, that it is not a fruitless approach. Again, I find children helpful here because they understand that when they go to the Father, they get the gift that was asked because fathers know how to give good gifts. I was hanging out with one of my daughters. You guys are probably sick of me saying this, but it's gonna, I'm going to be hanging out with them for a while, okay? <laughs> and we had a little window of time, a short window. And I said, what do you want to do? It's just me and you, one of those daddy-daughter times. And it was a couple hours, and she looked at me, and she says, let's go to Disneyland. And I was like, I appreciate the faith. I really do. Now, I can't do that. And she's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. And you know what I love about a child? She doesn't care about how we're going to pay for it. No child comes up to you and says, hey, I've been thinking. I'm wondering. I don't know what the budget's like, but you do. Can, can we afford to go to Disneyland? She says, let's go to Disneyland, and you worry about the bill. And she doesn't figure out how we're going to get down there. She didn't care if we drove or flew. She said, let's go to Disneyland. You figure out the travel. And in the same way, when we come to God, it is an invitation to say, God, you have everything. I don't have to doubt whether or not you have what I need. If fathers that are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more does the Father give the Holy Spirit? Liberally. The power of the Spirit to read his word and hear his voice. The power of the Spirit to listen to the feeble words of a preacher and actually be moved in your heart to do the will of God. He gives liberally the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's not just the power of the Holy Spirit. In Romans, Paul says, he who did not spare his only son, how much more will he freely give all things? So if you want to find out how giving someone is, find the best gift that they have ever given, and that's the bar, by which all other gifts should be obvious. And for the heart of God, he wants to make it so clear how giving he is, is that the gospel says that God so loved the world, he so loved you, while you were still a sinner, 
while you were far from him, fist in the air towards him, hard heart. He gave his son, his only begotten son, that whoever believed would not perish. That's the bar. God held back nothing. He gave his prized possession and then says, is there any doubt that I have wisdom for your situation? Come and I will give it to you liberally. And then it says that he will give it without reproach. A word we don't use often, but it comes up in scripture, so it's good to know. We're being called to live above reproach as leaders in ministry and leaders in the household. And it says that God will give liberally without reproach. So what, what is this saying? Uh, think of it as the disappointment. So if you live above reproach, it's say, do your best to not let someone view your life and be disappointed by what they see. So think it through. Think through how you're living, that you would live above that bar. And then when it says of God's liberal giving, he says he doesn't have reproach for it. Meaning if we come to God, he is not disappointed that we didn't already know. Isn't that good news? How many of you are the students that in a class you would rather hide behind a false sense of security than be uh, raise your hand and look ignorant or foolish? Don't raise your hand. You don't need to see your hand right now because I know you don't like that. I was like that too. I would rather just sit back in the back of the class than, than you know, prove, show the, the whole class and the teacher that I have no idea what anyone's talking about. And sometimes we're that way with God. I'd rather just stay back than go to you and say, I need you. Oh, Lord, I need you. And you see the opposite in children in this regard. As bold as they are with you, their parents, they will ask you for anything, and the bill's on you, and you'll figure it out, and they trust you. And try the opposite with your children. I love doing this. When we're at a restaurant and, and we need something, I always challenge my kids, you go ask for it. That's so fun to watch. We need like, hey, can we get a refill on water or maybe a napkin or something? And I send my daughters to the front and they just approach like, oh my gosh, I am about to talk to a stranger and their, their eyes are on the ground and their like hand is out and then they're like whispering to each other to try to encourage each other. It's like, can I get a napkin? It's like, you're asking me for Disneyland and you can't even ask for a napkin from a stranger? And yet, do you see the picture? When you do not have a relationship that is built and rooted in love and trust and faith in the other person, it is so hard to be vulnerable to ask. And so this is a call to the presence of God, the God who loves you, who doesn't spare anything from you, who has wisdom for the trials of your life. He's calling you to himself, and he says, call me your father when you come to me. We must serve a good God who makes peace and joy such a high priority of our life. And so some of you struggle to come to church. Some of you struggle to read the word. Some of you struggle to hear a message of hope and God's love and forgiveness and grace and mercy and long-suffering for you because you're not sure you're worthy for that kind of God. Well, here's the reality. Ask and believe that he gives without reproach. He is not disappointed in you. That's why I appreciate Jesus. He knows your needs before you ask. He knows the condition of your heart. The testing of your faith is not so that God would know your faith. He already knows it. It's so that the genuineness of your faith would be shown to you so that you can come to these places where God uses the trial to make you more complete in him. Gives without reproach. And finally, he says, and it will 
be given to him. Do you believe that when you ask, God will give you what you need? And rather than answer that question with a simple yes or no, here's a secondary question that sometimes gives you a clearer picture of your approach to God. Do you ever feel, like me at times, that prayer is actually time wasted? Do you ever feel like the trial is so intense that you have so much on your plate that you can pray for a little bit and then you got to get busy? It's like, I've got so much to do to get through this that I'm going to count it all joy and I'm going to pray and then I'm going to get through my list of things to do because if it's going to be, it's up to me. Well, this is a call to put your faith in God in a renewing and a refreshing way because God can do more in a moment than you can do in a lifetime. We get a picture of two sisters greeting Jesus in to some sort of gathering that they were going to have. Mary and Martha, and what a wonderful picture it is to encourage us of the blessing of believing that it is better to ask God than to work yourself. Classically, Martha was so busy getting everything ready, and there's a time and a place for that. Hard work is good. Preparation is good. And Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. And as Martha was disappointed because there's so much to do, and there's so much to do in our world right now, in your life right now. And yet Jesus says, she's sitting at my feet and she's chosen the better thing. Sometimes a trial can be used in your life to rearrange what you actually put your hope in and what you draw the power from. And what James is saying is ask God, believe with faith that he'll give to you, yes, you, that he won't be disappointed in the question, and that there is power in prayer because he has what you need. So we ask and we believe, and now we come to maybe the greatest challenge of trying times, of the times we live in, of the, the culture we live in, which is that final letter of our outline, to commit. Look what James says. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Here is the not good news this morning. When you are wavering in your faith, when you ask God for wisdom, but you're not quite sure if it's what you actually needed in the first place, it says in verse 7, let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded. He's unstable in all his ways. A trial will test the foundation of your life, and where you stand on sand, you will find shifting and moving ground. And I appreciate what James does here in a great proverb fashion. It is like a riddle, someone who would go to God for wisdom and yet not actually take the wisdom and commit to it, it says, don't believe you'd receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because he's not the Lord. He's the Lord of your life when you commit to his way. He's the Lord of your life when in the midst of a storm or a trial or a desperate need for the joy of the presence of God, he gives you exactly what you need in the discretion of your life, in the direction of your steps, and yet you're not so sure. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, 
and then don't do what I tell you to do. So I will share a few aspects of the wisdom that comes through the commitment that we're making to follow Jesus. As the great song says, I've decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. In the same way you've decided to commit to your husband or wife and there is no turning back and part of the promise is that there will be ups and downs and sickness and health and there's richer or poor and yet in all of those things you stay committed. Maybe the most elevated sin is the sin of adultery which is double-minded relationships. A relationship that is split between two people. God says it leads to death in the wisdom writing. And then he uses that relationship as a way for us to understand the way we worship God and we worship the false idols of the world. So how do we stay committed in the trial? Here's commitments that will come through your prayer life leading to wisdom in three separate areas of your life. First, a commitment to the will of God. All wisdom starts in the fear of the Lord. There's no greater wisdom than obeying God. That's where wisdom exists. And the difference between knowledge and wisdom is knowledge is reading the Proverbs and wisdom is living them. The obedient builder. Anyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise builder doing the will of God. Here's how Alistair Begg puts it. When we ask him for the wisdom that we require to live in the way that he wants, we must not then proceed to do things in our own way. The wisdom of God is not given to you as an option for you to consider amongst all of the ways that you are phoning a friend and asking the audience. It's not a multiple choice question. The gospel gives a broad invitation and a very narrow gate to enter. And of course, this whole point of wisdom in the will of God can be found in probably the most profound prayer that you find in the scriptures. Jesus in the garden before the cross. He takes his disciples that long to learn how to pray, and he shows them in real time in the midst of his test. A great sorrow and anguish has overcome him where he's sweating tears like blood. And he prays thus, Father, if it is possible, let this cup Pass from me. The cup of the wrath of God that will be poured out on the cross of Christ. If it's at all possible to remove the sin of the world from his cross. And yet, nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. One of the ways that we are being stretched in our faith that will produce in us joy and completion is whatever way the trial will remove something that was not part of the will of God for your life and bring you into a closer relationship through the power of prayer with the word nevertheless. Here's what I thought I wanted, but nevertheless, whatever you want, God. Here's what I was planning, but nevertheless, God, Direct my steps. I will lean not on my own understanding, but you will direct my steps. The nevertheless prayer is prayed in the trial, committing to the will of God. The second aspect for you to cling to in your prayer time, your quiet time with the Lord, is that you would first give him 
all of the circumstances that you don't understand to better understand his will. And second, and maybe my least favorite part of the trying times of life is that we are also to commit to waiting on God. There is not a perfect timeline for the trials of your life. We see throughout scripture promises that were stretched into trying patience. And James himself says that knowing this, the testing of your faith produces patience, which means part of all the things that we're going through in the world as a church, as families, as believers and disciples is teaching us how to trust God's timing instead of our own. If I was Christ, I'd be done with the whole project. Whoever's not saved, it's too late on my timeline. If I was Christ, the trying times that I go through would happen very quickly. Just listen to my plea. I'm ready for this to be done. And yet James teaches us that part of the trial is to give us endurance. Sometimes we hear the word waiting, if you're like me, and you automatically categorize it as a negative. Maybe the easiest way to get a picture of some negative waiting is the red light. No one likes to get stuck in traffic at red light after red light after red light, stuck behind the guy who's on his phone and doesn't even see when it turns green. But that is such a passive waiting that I don't think that's what James is getting. At the red light, you sit and you're waiting. And sometimes in your waiting, you're frustrated and you just want to keep going. And in many ways, there are red light believers that are like, okay, this trial, I'm pushing pause on my hope. I'm pushing pause on the sovereignty of God and the trust of God. And I'm just going to wait for it to be over or heaven or rapture. Whatever it is, I'm just waiting for it to be done. And yet James uses a picture and words where patience and perseverance are interchangeable. And so our waiting is less like a red light and more like a marathon. Because there is waiting for the finish line in perseverance. And James says, your trying gives you better faith to get to the next race. But in your waiting, you are not passively doing nothing. In your waiting, you're praying. You're going to God. You're asking. Jesus actually gives a parable of a purposeful and yet totally dependent prayer life. Luke chapter 18, verse 1, he gives a story of a persistent widow who never stops pleading. She never takes matters into her own hand. It says this, Jesus spoke a parable to them, always saying that one ought to pray and not lose heart. In other words, pray and don't give up. Wait on God, but endure in your waiting. And the parable goes like this. There was in a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. That, that's the, the, the way for us to get a great contrast from the heart of God that James gives us. He gives to all liberally without reproach. And now we're going to get an example of someone who doesn't even love God and doesn't like people. And somehow through the persistent waiting on this judge, his heart could be moved. Get just, uh, now there was a widow in that city. And she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. A trial, literally. A judge is getting involved. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said with himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, because of this widow, and she troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. She never took matters into her own hands. In fact, Jesus 
never mistakes his characters. He chose a widow purposefully. A, a widow doesn't have a lot of options. A widow was someone that James will look at and say, you really want to know how much you love God and your religion? Take care of widows because they need your help. And in this widow, with no other option, she never stops waiting for the answer of the judge. A cruel judge can be moved. How much greater can the loving judge? In your waiting, you're persevering. Now, here's a, maybe a living parable that you can relate to in this. I think one of the most challenging trials of life has less to do with your own soul, your own diagnosis, your own life circumstance, and more to do with the people you love. Because the ordering of our life given to us by Jesus is that the greatest commandment is to love God, and then people come second before us. We give preference to one another. Which means when there's distance or division or dissension among people, it wears on our soul. We're not supposed to be at odds with people. We're not supposed to lose people. It can be some of the biggest trials right now that you're thinking through in this sanctuary have so many people other than yourself on your hearts and your minds. And maybe the greatest way that we see a trial is when we see a loving father or mother becoming a persistent person of prayer for a lost child. Maybe that's the greatest of all trials because that's kind of the trial of the gospel, that there is a loving father who longs to have the children that he longs for return to him. And if you're a parent that has ever lost a child to the distance of this world, you are being called to wait and persevere in the power of prayer. There is no other answer that I can offer a parent of a prodigal child. You can't find them. You can't change their mind. You can't give them theology. You can't save them by good parenting. What you can do is petition to the judge who loves them. And it might take years. I know from experience. Because in my own wanderings through life, I was never changed through a debate or an argument. There was no fancy church service that won me back. No one handed me a flyer or invited me to the, to the altar. I had a persistent mother who never stopped praying. And God can do more through the power of prayer for someone who never gives up than we can do in our lifetime. Commit to the power of waiting on God. And finally, a last wise commitment to make that will define all others and truly is the battle of your trial. That is a commitment to the worship of God in your life. There is no greater tragedy than when your heart that was given to God because of the circumstances of your life becomes so broken that you give it to something else. And the testing of your faith is ultimately a testing of your worship. We commit to the worship of God. Throughout the book of James, we will be reminded to pray because it's full of wisdom. And wisdom is found in the presence of God and the power of Scripture. 
And in one moment, in James chapter 5, he's going to encourage us to pray. If anyone's sick, we pray for them. And he gives us an example of Elijah who prayed normal. He was like us. He wasn't like a superhero in the faith, although he did great things through the power of prayer. And it stopped raining. And then he prayed again, and it rained again. And that story is helpful for this moment when we think about the trying of your faith testing the foundation of your worship because this actually is seen in the story of Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we actually get the climax of the story that James references because as James didn't pr- prayed and it didn't rain, that was not the most desirable thing for the time, especially if you're an evil king and it's affecting your kingdom. So he was after Elijah, King Ahab. And it, it kind of comes to a head when Elijah agrees to meet and they decide to test the gods that they are, are, are serving. And so you have in one side the prophet of Baal, and the other side the prophet of Yahweh, or our God. And they're going to see which God shows up, which is a great picture of a trial. A trial will show you which God is real. A trial will show you which God is living and has power to save and power to give wisdom and power to help you navigate the storm. And there's something interesting Elijah says as the showdown's happening. He says this, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people did not answer. And so we have a picture of three distinct audiences that could listen to this message in the midst of a trial. We have the picture of Elijah who knows the power of God in his life. He prayed and it did not rain. He prayed again and it did. He had the confidence that even with wet wood, God could rain down fire and make it come come alive. And there are some of us in the midst of a trial that say, watch what my God will do. And then you have another distinct audience who in the midst of the showdown, the world in your soul, they're convinced that the answers that you need are in the God of this age. And they'll tell you about all of the things that you can do apart from the living God to find your rest. If we studied the book of Revelation, it would say some are hot and some are cold. And then there's a middle ground. It says the people were there watching. Elijah gives a call for them to choose and they say nothing. And this is the third and most dangerous response that can happen in a trial. As you are given the buffet of choices on how to deal with heartbreak, how to deal with a worn out and tattered soul. And you listen to the wisdom of God and it's one option. You listen to the wisdom of this world and it's another option. And what James is saying is you get nothing. You're double-minded. You haven't given your heart to God. You worship him with your lips, but your heart is somewhere else. And the commitment that we make as people who want the wisdom of God is to say, all of the trials of my life will turn into not me being double-minded, but me being single-focused and pure heart that God is God and I worship him still. Who do you worship in your trial? Your trial in the wisdom of God is giving you an opportunity to make a new commitment to following the way of Christ. A commitment to the perfect will of God who will take everything in your life 
and work it together for good because you love him and you're called according to his purpose, according to his will. Your trial will teach you that endurance, that when you wait on the Lord, you will rise up with wings like eagles. Your waiting will not be in vain. He will meet you in his perfect timing with the answer for your soul. And your trial will teach you how to worship. Some of the most powerful worship in your life will not come with dancing, but will come with tears. Ecclesiastes says it's better to be in the house of mourning than the house of feasting. And I think it's because the worship is so real. So if you are in the midst of a trial, if you've just come out of one or you're going through one next week, wisdom is this, love the Lord your God and trust him with every detail beyond what you can understand. Give him everything through the power of prayer and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart. And in the end, it will turn into a completion of your faith. 